0: All right, Matthew 12, uh, 38 through 45, we'll uh, be in that today, so let's go ahead, I'll read it. It says, uh, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of this earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So, my question for you today is, have you ever been in a place where you find yourself wondering if God uh, really is who he says he is? Is God really good? Is he actually loving? Is he in control? Does he really care about me? And I think all of us get to a point where we feel like our faith may not be enough. And so we start to seek signs Lord, if you could just give me one tangible sign, that would be enough for me. I would know that you love me. I would know that you exist. I would know that you care. I've been there. You've probably been there. The people around you probably been there at some point. We've seen God's goodness time and time again, and yet we still want to see a sign. And who wouldn't? You know, as a, as a kid, I would read the stories in the Old Testament and see the miracles and I would think to myself, how great would it be to see one of these? How great would it be to see the Pacific Ocean divided in two? Or how great would it be to see the sun just kind of standing still for 24 hours? we are people who always seek more Looking for something more to solidify our faith. Looking for more signs that will show that God um, has us as a priority. You know, Lord, if you, uh, if you allow that girl to say yes when I ask her out, I'll be sitting in the front row on Sunday morning. I'll show up early. Lord, just let the Bears win a couple of games. They don't even even need to make it to the Super Bowl. They just need to win a couple, and you know what? I'll sign up for children's ministry on Sunday. Or maybe you're here and you don't believe in God at all, and you're saying, God, if you're real, just show me something and I will believe. Open up the sky and show your face. Cure me of this disease I have. We treat God like a genie and expect him to cater to our every whim. Dance for us, we say carelessly, not understanding uh, fully who it is that we're dealing with. And so it is with the Pharisees and the scribes in this passage. They sought to make Jesus cater to their whims and do what they wanted when they wanted it. But Jesus doesn't submit to them in that way. He does his own thing and he promises promises them a sign that will, beyond the shadow of a doubt, prove that he is who he says he is. And so when faced with the reality of the resurrection, they and us today, will either have to submit to the lordship of Jesus, or we will double down on the hardness of our hearts. And so this passage begins with the Pharisees and the scribes coming to Jesus and asking for a sign And on first glance, this may seem like an innocent ask. After all, maybe they're just curious. They just want to see one of these miracles that Jesus has been doing. But if you've been following along for the past few weeks, you'll notice that this scene isn't the beginning of something new. It's a continuation of what's been going on. Jesus healed a demon-oppressed man And immediately the Pharisees mocked the work he had done, saying it was the work of the devil. So Jesus rebukes them for thinking, for their thinking, asking, how can Satan work against his own kingdom? And if the sons of the Pharisees are also casting out demons, were they doing it by the power of the devil as well? Where the sons are having belief, the fathers are skeptical. And Jesus goes on to say that out of the abundance of the heart is where one speaks. And so the Pharisees were declaring themselves to be trees without fruit, And so they will be judged for their unbelief. And upon hearing that, the reply, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. What? If I were being rebuked by Jesus, I would have shrunk and ran away. I would have been embarrassed. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they feign innocence. We wish to see a sign from you. Just give us one more thing. They've just seen a demon-possessed man being healed. Not only that, but throughout the book of Matthew, they have seen numerous signs. They have seen him minister to the crowds, healing diseases, freeing demon-possessed people. He has cleansed the leper, healed the centurion's son, healed Peter's mother-in-law, raised a girl from the dead, healed a woman who'd been unclean for 12 years, given sight to the blind, caused the mute to speak, the lame to walk. What more could they need? What other sign could be given to them to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah? Most of us in this room would want to see even one of these miracles happening in front of our face. But the Pharisees and the scribes have seen time and time again the power of God at work. And still they remain in disbelief. Still their hearts are hardened. And so when they ask him for this sign, they're not coming to him like the man who said, I believe, please help my unbelief. They're coming as a brood of vipers wanting to control Jesus, wanting him to give in to their needs. So Jesus, knowing their hearts, responds, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus is condemning these men, calling them an evil and adulterous generation brings to mind uh, Moses' words about his own generation in Deuteronomy 32.5. It says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So Jesus, he knows the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes. In their lifetime, they have seen more miracles than any other generation before them. The second closest generation would have been the Israelites in Egypt who saw the 10 plagues, who saw the sea divide in two, who saw Mount Sinai tremble with God's power as he descended to speak to the people. And yet they too died in the wilderness because of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus knows that people can see signs and yet still remain in unbelief. It happened to the generation of Moses, and now it's happening to this generation too. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so in the manner typical of Jesus, he replies in a way that points his audience to a deeper meaning. He says, okay, you seek a sign. I'll give you a final sign. Something that will be so astounding that you will have to believe. And so he draws a parallel to the story of Jonah. And Jonah was a prophet from God sent to the people of Nineveh to tell them to repent. And Jonah refuses to do so because the Assyrians are enemies of the Israelites. And can one really blame Jonah for that? The people of Assyria, they were a warrior culture. They destroyed everything in their path. They raised cities, scattered the conquered people. And how could God give them a chance to repent? They're evil. And so Jonah tries to flee, but as the psalmist reminds us, where can I go from your presence, O Lord? So a storm arises, and Jonah is thrown overboard to save the lives of the sailors. He's swallowed by a giant fish, and he lays there for three days and three nights. And he cries out to God, and his prayer describes uh, his station of being like in the underworld. Jonah two says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and he heard my voice. Jonah was as good as dead in the fish, and yet the Lord brought him out, and Jonah was able to complete his mission. And so Jesus says that he too will undergo a similar experience. He will go down into the depths of the earth and be there for three days and three nights. And we see that the people of Nineveh repented with the small preaching that Jonah gave them. And so what was Jonah's message? Repent, for in 40 days, this city will be destroyed. That was it. Imagine if I stood here and I said, Repent, for in 40 days, West Lynn will be destroyed. What's your response? There's nothing in my message about grace, nothing about forgiveness. All that the people of Nineveh knew was that a prophet had come into their midst. And something touched their hearts. And the people repented. They turned from their evil ways and dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And because of this, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The people of Nineveh with the small revelation they received, turned from their sins and believed. And here stand the Pharisees and the scribes. They are face to face with a greater prophet than Jonah. They have received greater revelation than the people of Nineveh. Jesus has come in power and glory, proclaiming, sorry, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is showing them that their repentance can give them entrance into a community greater than one could imagine. He has done miracle after miracle to prove his claims. Miracles that show what the kingdom of God truly looks like. It's um, an upside down kingdom where those who are on the edges of society are brought into the center A place where the sick and the dying receive their healing. A place where justice thrives and everybody is invited to come into. And yet despite all of this knowledge, all of this revelation, the Pharisees and the scribes refuse to believe. They are seeing the one greater than Jonah. The one greater than Moses who was prophesied. And yet they dig their heels in. They will continue to test him they continue to demand more and more proof. What else do they need? The people of Nineveh believed? Why can't they believe? The Pharisees and the scribes are condemning themselves through their unbelief. Here is the greater prophet. Here's the one who day after day is showing off his power, showing off the power of the kingdom so that all may understand what God wants to establish on this earth. And so Jesus continues by saying, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So who's the queen of the south? It is the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. uh, We hear about this queen who the wisdom of Solomon His fame has reached her lands, and so she comes and tests him with hard questions. Gives him riddles, and Solomon responds to all of them. He has answers for all her questions. And so the queen blesses Solomon and the God that he serves. She understands that there's something about this God of the Israelites who has given Solomon such wisdom Um, that cannot be surpassed and has never been surpassed again. And so this queen of Sheba, who recognized that wisdom, will stand in judgment over the Pharisees. The same Pharisees who prided themselves on their understanding and wisdom of the scripture. The Pharisees who saw themselves as the chosen sons of Abraham, who held the law in their minds. And so Jesus says, the queen of the south, will rise up and judge you as well. Another Gentile who has far less knowledge of God than the Pharisees, and yet she will stand in judgment over them. All she heard is Solomon and about, thank you, and about this God who blessed him with wisdom. And she made a trip that is, you know, they say at least a thousand miles to come visit. Have you ever taking a journey of a thousand miles. That is, uh, for me, as I thought about it, you know, it's, it was the exact distance that it took me to come from San Diego to Portland when I first moved up here. And I remember when I set out, I made my plans, you know? I was like, all right, it's gonna be this long. Here's where I'll stop for uh, food. Here's where I'll stop for bathroom breaks. Here's where I'll stop because it says that there is a mystery spot and I need to know what this mystery spot is. And it took me uh, over three days to make it to Portland. Uh, but the Queen of Sheba, she was making the similar journey and it wasn't as comfortable as mine was. She was on camels, an entourage. She was bringing spices and gold with her. It would have taken her quite some time to make that journey. And yet something about Solomon's wisdom Uh, encouraged her to make the trip. She wanted to hear about this man who was blessed with heavenly wisdom. The Pharisees, however, have a greater wisdom in front of them. They have the one whom Proverbs calls wisdom itself. They have the one who knows the heart of the Father, for he has been with the Father since time eternal. And they don't have to travel a thousand miles to hear his wisdom. He has come directly to them and yet they refuse to believe they have spurned wisdom and spurned the greater prophet their hearts are just full of deceit and thinking of ways to keep trapping jesus in mark 3:5 we see that jesus he knows their hearts and he is angered at the hardness of their hearts here are the men who should have recognized the messiah when he came the man who should have been first in line to welcome him, to give him the honor due to him, and yet their hearts are hardened. They have seen sign after sign, and yet they do not believe. And they ask Jesus, just one more sign. And Jesus both gives in, and he does not give in. He says, all right, one more sign. I will give you one more sign gonna be that of his death and resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the son of man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And just like Jonah received new life upon being spit out by the fish, so Jesus will resurrect by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that the resurrection is the final sign that Jesus will give all who doubt who he is. He will not dance like a puppet for those who ask him to, rather all of them are pointed to one final sign. Says, okay, Pharisees, you want a sign? You're not gonna get it now, but let me prophesy to you. Jesus says, my body will be in the earth for three days and three nights, and then I will rise up again And so this will be the final sign for the Pharisees and the scribes. They will look at the empty tomb. You don't want to look? You you don't want to believe Jesus when he's alive? That's okay. Wait for him to die. Wait those three days and then go to the tomb and tell me what's in there. And they will find nothing. But Luke 16, 31 Reminds us, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced by someone rising from the dead. And so the resurrection is the final sign that is given to all of us about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament passages. He's the seed who crushes the head of the serpent. He is our final Sabbath rest He is the son of David who will reign on the throne forever. He's the son of God sent to save us from our sins. But none of this is real if Jesus is still in the tomb. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If Jesus is not resurrected, then everything he said about himself is a lie. If Jesus is not resurrected, what are we doing in this room? We may as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Because if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, Our sins have not been forgiven. We're not right with God. We will not raise from the dead as our hope is. But yet the proof is overwhelming that Jesus resurrected from the grave. If the body of Jesus could have been located, the Pharisees would have brought it out as soon as they could. And pointed, look, here's the body. Here's the tomb. If the disciples had hidden the body, as some claim they did, wouldn't there have been a few disciples who would have probably cracked under the pressure of torture to reveal where the body was hidden? The early church died for what they knew to be truth. They knew Jesus had resurrected. They knew that tomb was empty. They knew that he was reigning as king from heaven. And so the resurrection proved true, all the claims of Jesus. He was the son of David who would sit on the throne forever. He was the seed of Abraham who would inherit the land and all nations would be blessed through him. He was the son of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. And so Jesus ends the section with the passage that seems a little weird when you first read it. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this generation. It's like, what is Jesus talking about? First he was talking about the condemnation of the Pharisees, and now it's like he's jumped into a whole other topic about demons and waterless places. But we see that he ties it in. At the end he says, so also will it be with this evil generation, this generation that's evil and adulterous, that seeks a sign. So, Jesus has come in power and glory, speaking as one who has authority. He has started to kick Satan out of the house. He is setting things right. He is teaching Israel the worship that God truly desires. And so, those who are listening to Jesus have two possible responses to what is set out in front of them. They must acknowledge that, you know, God is with Jesus. And that by the power of the Spirit, Jesus is doing all these works. He's cleaning house just like he will cleanse the temple. He is binding the strong man, the devil, so that the proclamation of the gospel can go forth. This house is empty. But will the Israelites allow the Spirit to dwell in them? Will they accept the words that Jesus speaks? Because what is the the alternative? If the spirit isn't dwelling in someone, they're spiritually empty. They cling to nothing of substance. They, they cling to the hardness of their hearts, to their sins. And the enemy will move in once more. And now the person's in a worse state than before. These Pharisees were going to be in a worse state than before. Why? Because they've seen Jesus, they've heard the gospel message. And if they reject it, there is no other message that they will be saved by. The Pharisees have heard the proclamation of the kingdom and they have said, I will have no part in this. The ones who should have been the ones to acknowledge the Messiah saw his power at work, but they clung to their traditions. They clung to their sins instead. They attributed the work of the spirit to the devil They showed what kind of fruit they were producing. And now they would be judged by the Gentiles, people that they would have considered unclean, men and women with far less revelation. And the Pharisees and scribes were seeing this power and they were refusing to submit. But the beauty of Jesus is even in here, he gives them mercy because he tells them, Yeah, you don't believe right now? That's okay. Just wait till the sign gets fulfilled, till his death and resurrection. And we see that the Pharisees and the scribes would be witnesses of all that would happen. They would be the ones who sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. They would be the ones calling out to Pilate to crucify him. They would see his mangled body on display, hanging on the cross, dying the death of a rebel. And then they would be faced with the reality of the resurrection. They would understand that there was no body in the tomb. That something miraculous had happened. But the tragedy was that instead of believing the sign when it was fulfilled, the Pharisees paid off the guards to spread a false story. Clinging to their old ways, they brought condemnation upon themselves. And they refused to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So how many of us haven't been in that same place? We wanna to cling to our own ways. We wanna to cling to the way things have been. And so we refuse to allow Jesus to truly be king in our lives. We ask him time and time again for just one more sign. Jesus, if you fix my broken relationship with my spouse, with my partner, I promise I'll surrender to you. And then we see that relationship get healed, but we go on living our lives as normal. Jesus, if you help me get that job with, you know, better income and more steady hours, I promise I will make time to come to church on Sunday. Once we get that job, we prioritize other things. We treat Jesus like a genie, when we should be treating him as a sovereign king. Or maybe there's some of us who are saying, Jesus, I don't know if I can trust you. I asked for this one thing, I asked for this other thing, it never happened, my family is still broken, my relationships is terrible, my health isn't the best, I have a terrible job. But let me ask you this, is your relationship to Jesus dependent on what happens in this lifetime? Or is it rooted in the reality of the resurrection? Because Jesus emerging from the tomb proved that he is the Son of God. It proved that He is who He said He was. It proves that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world one person at a time. It's a proof that in the end, good is victorious over evil, that this broken world will give way to a perfect Jerusalem where justice reigns. We give up eternity for the pleasures of this lifetime. Man, maybe there is a heaven. But you know, I can't trust you fully, Jesus, because this and this. And if we don't trust Jesus fully, we're saying we don't believe his promises will come true. We don't believe fully that he is the way and the truth and the life, that he is the resurrection, that he is a good shepherd, that he is our bread of life and our living water. Like the Pharisees and the scribes, we'll always just keep asking for one more sign and yet we'll never be fully satisfied. So here's the gospel message for all of us. Jesus is the Son of God. We were made to be in perfect union with God, but we sinned and disobeyed. But in his great mercy, God sent his Son to live the perfect life for us, to take our sins upon himself so that we could be reconciled to the Father. And there is no greater sign that can be given to us than the fact that the body of Jesus was never found. It never saw decay, that that tomb lies empty. Jesus rose through the power of the Spirit and sits at the right hand of the Father now. And because Jesus resurrected, we too can have confidence that we shall rise from the dead. We can have confidence that our sins have been erased. We can have confidence that we can approach the Father who sits on his throne and speak with him directly. And perhaps you sit here and say, listen, it's not as simple as this. And that's okay too. I would love to hear your concerns and your struggles. Come talk to any of the pastors here at New Life. We would love to walk alongside you. But whether you're a skeptic or a believer, whether you have to let go of one thing or let go of a lot of things, at some point you will come face to face with the empty tomb. And you will have to make a choice. Will Jesus be king in your life or will you choose to be the own king in your life? And so as we go through this week, we will wrestle with this time and time again. And in the end, it's always better to surrender your life to Jesus And let me tell you, there is not one moment to waste in this lifetime, for there will be no sign greater given to us than that of an empty tomb. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we just give you thanks um, just for your word, for your message. Uh, Yeah, we give you thanks that you are who you say you are, that you have been raised from the dead, that we can... We can have full confidence that you are sitting at the right hand of the Father. So, Lord, as we go about our week, may that just become a reality in our lives. May we be able to wrestle with the truth of Scripture. And may we be able to fully surrender our lives to you um, in every way. In Jesus' name, Amen.